You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a very special guest, Rebecca McLaughlin. We're going to be talking about her new book, The Secular Creed, Engaging Five Contemporary Claims. And in this, the five claims in this book are number one, Black Lives Matter, number two, Love is Love, number three, Gay Rights or Civil Rights, number four, Women's Rights or Human Rights, and number five, Transgender Women are Women. And I'm excited to to talk about her, about this book. And she is also the author of of the award-winning book, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. And another book, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. She's also the author of several other books. Um, She holds a PhD from Cambridge University and a theology degree from Oak Hill College and is the co-founder of Vocable Communications. Welcome, Rebecca. Hi, it's great to virtually be here. It's good to have you. So we're going to talk about your book, Secular Creed, which is, by the way, this book is really short and very readable and uh, it's very succinct. So, um, but before we get to the book, I just wanted to, to, to see if you would just give us a little bit of your background. Sure. So I come from the UK, as your discerning listeners may have noticed from <laughs> we may have noticed my, that. <laughs> my dulcet tones. It actually always worries me whenever I speak for things in the UK, I kind of worry because in the US, I get this intelligence bump just because of my accent. People want to listen to me and they give me a free pass of saying stuff. I'm like, oh, when I go back to my homeland, are they just going to think I'm totally dumb? Um, <laughs> so yeah, I come from the UK. I lived there. Um, all through my childhood, went to college, studied Shakespeare for seven years. At the very tail end of that, met a guy from Oklahoma. And uh, it turns out it's actually quite hard to find a good evangelical man in the UK. So I had to resort to an American. And um, we got married after my second year in seminary. And then he was very keen to move back over here. So that's the sort of my geographic autobiography. Um, my spiritual autobiography is a quick overview of that. I grew up in a kind of a mixed Christian home, I would say. Um, we went to church, but not honestly to a church that I would recommend to anyone today where I recommending churches. And there I, I was exposed to, to the scriptures just in the daily and weekly readings. And, and I felt very sure from pretty early on, I remember certainly from age nine, knowing that Jesus was the only thing that I could really count on. Like any anyone else or anything else in my life could be gone tomorrow, but not Jesus. And I also knew from an early age that while my faith was deeply personal, that she couldn't be private, that mm-hmm. following Jesus wasn't just between me and him. It actually meant sharing my faith as best I could with everyone who crossed my path. And, and I was for many years in sort of very academic very sort of secular school settings where very few of my friends would have called themselves Christians and 
most of my friends would have sort of principled objections to Christianity. So it wasn't just they didn't happen to be Christians, but they thought that Christians were foolish or bigoted or you know many of any of the things. So I guess I, I spent years having conversations with friends who are who are deeply respected and and deeply loved and trying to explain to them why I found Jesus to be so compelling. And so in some ways the kinds of conversations that I'm getting to have today are in some ways no different from the conversations I've been having since I was sort of nine or ten with uh, with friends where right. they hash through some of these hard questions. Um and the, the one other kind of piece that thread that that kind of runs through this story is that so I said from from as long ago as I can remember I've been a follower of Jesus and as long as I can remember I've been attracted to other women so there was a, a period where that was you know real part of my experience and I just wasn't talking to anybody about it um I knew that the bible was clear when it came to same-sex sexuality I think I thought it was just a phase that I would grow out of um, when I was in grad school, I thought, you know what, once you're in grad school, it's hard to keep telling yourself you're going to grow out of something. You're sort of proper, you're a proper adult at that point. Right. You know, you may or may not be still growing out of anything. Um, and so, like I say, I was you know, very clear on Jesus, pretty clear on the scriptures, but just sort of wrestled with this, this piece of my own experience, um, which was not only drawing me or like had the potential to draw me a, a, away from following the scriptures but simultaneously made it actually hard for me to to be in close fellowship with other Christians because I I, I had such a hard time sharing that experience with friends um I, I I was afraid this is I'm probably answering too many questions at once here but <laughs> you asked my story so here it is <laughs> um I think for years even as an adult believer I was afraid that if my friends knew about my experience of same-sex attraction, that they would just take a half step away from me. Okay. I, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking they'd kind of run screaming, but I thought that they would just be like, Oh, you know, this, well, I sort of need to rethink being close to this person. And it was years before I realized that actually I was taking a half step away from them by not mm. being honest about this, this piece of, of my experience through my life. Um, and it's been extremely redemptive for me in the last few years to have close Christian friends, you know, all of my things, um, you know, in this area and in other areas. And you still seem to love me. And so how long have you been married to your husband now? It will be 15 years tomorrow. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Happy anniversary. Thank you. And, um, and so let's get into the secular, the secular creed. And the subtitle, as I mentioned before, was Engaging Five Contemporary Claims. Why this book now? Why the shortness of the book, the brevity? <laughs> and why? Um, and what is the title? What do you mean by the title? In my neighborhood here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I'm pretty sure in your neighborhood, you're, you're, you in California, is that right? Yeah, I'm in West Hollywood, California. Yeah. Yeah. So assuming people have yards, actually, that may be the limitation where you are. But here, if if people do have yards, there's a decent chance that they will, in that yard, have a yard sign, which says something like this. In this house, we believe that Black Lives Matter, love is love, women's rights are human rights. And then there's a sort of smattering of other claims that might be in there, like kindness is everything, or diversity makes us stronger, or science is real, or new human is illegal. There's a kind of range of other claims. But typically, 
those three claims, Black Lives Matter, Lovers Love, and Women's Rights are Human Rights, are somewhere on those signs. And I think a lot of Christians have a really hard time knowing how to respond. Mm -hmm. So funnily enough, I wrote my first two books primarily for non-Christians. This is my third book, The Secular Creed. And it's actually primarily for Christians, though I I would hope that a non-believer who was curious might find it helpful too. But in my experience, most Christians want to go kind of one or two ways with those signs. They'll either look at those signs and think, okay, you know, first claim Black Lives Matter. I know that's not only true, but also something that the Bible is so very clear on. Um, the, the quality of people, regardless of their racial or ethnic background, um, the call to love across racial and ethnic difference. Um, they may be profoundly aware of the ways in which Christians uh, have historically failed to live up to that call. Um, and they've been told that the claim that black lives truly do matter is sort of intrinsically tied to that second claim that, that love is love. And so, um, you know, folks, as they're kind of rethinking their faith in light of some of the, the questions that have been you know, pressing on them in, in recent years, some Christians are kind of wanting to take those signs and hammer them into their own yards. Think, you know, this, this is a package deal. I know some of it is speaking to truth, so I've got to kind of grab onto all of it. Mm-hmm. The other side of the coin is Christians who look at that sign and think there are some things on that sign that I know are wrong, that I know are against what the Bible says. And so I actually, I don't want to listen to any of it. I don't want to, I don't have any time for any of these conversations and perhaps not literally, but at least sort of figuratively, I want to take my mallet and instead of hammering that sign into my yard, I want to kind of knock down all my neighbor's signs. <laughs> um, the reason I wrote the secular creed is because I think actually as Christians, if we go back to the scriptures, we'll find we need a more nuanced approach to each of those questions. And we'll also find that the very soil, so to speak, that those, those claims are planted in is ultimately Christian soil, even when the claims being made actually pull people away from the scriptures because they're founded on things like the belief that all human beings are fundamentally morally equal, that the strong and the rich and the powerful shouldn't trample on the, the weak and the poor and the marginalized, that men are fundamentally equal to women and, and not sort of superior to women. Um, all these all these claims are actually, if you look historically, specifically Christian beliefs rather mm-hmm. than being self-evident truths. So right. even when we and our, our non-believing friends might most profoundly disagree on a question, we'll find we're often both standing on what is to some extent Christian soil. Right. And in the in the first chapter, the Black Lives Matter chapter, you have a section called the secular sinkhole. And uh, and we see that we basically we see that no lives matter if if no natural if there are no natural rights mm-hmm. um so kind of what is explain that talk about that a little bit yeah i've been really interested in the last few years to read some of the leading atheist and agnostic thinkers on on, on a number of these questions um in particular, I read a book called uh, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by an Israeli historian named Yuval Noah Harari, who I, I quote in, in the book a few times. And what he's seeking to do is, from his perspective as a, I think, atheist or certainly agnostic um, cultural Jew, looking back at the history of Homo sapiens and, um, yeah, kind of catching us up on what's been, what's been happening. <laughs> and, and his 
his book makes statements like this. Um, Homo sapiens have no natural rights, just as chimpanzees, hyenas and spiders have no natural rights. Right. He says that human rights are figments of our fertile imaginations. Um, he quotes the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And he says the Americans got the idea of human equality from Christianity. But if we stop believing in a God who made humans and humans having souls and made his, his image, etc., what does it even mean to say that human beings are equal? He says the, the scientific study of Homo sapiens has embarrassingly little to do with human rights and equality. And it's just sobering to hear someone with his background and, and expertise kind of blowing a hole in the side of what honestly many of my non-Christian friends believe, which is that there are certain things that are just like more common sense that we don't need any religious basis for. But of course, you and I agree that, you know, human beings are fundamentally morally equal, that racism right. is wrong, that et cetera, et cetera. And people like Harari and also British historian Tom Holland kind of coming from a different angle um, in his his sort of massive and very interesting book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, sort of pointed out, and actually, no, these are, these are specifically Christian claims on truth, which other people hold can hold if they like, but actually they don't have any basis for it if, if, if we pull Jesus out of, out of the bottom of the foundation. Right. So, I mean, basically, there is no basis for human rights if we don't <laughs> believe in the God of the Bible, essentially. Right. Is what, yeah. So, and... And you talk about, um, obviously, and then you, you talk about this in that chapter, the first chapter, that, of course, Black Lives Matter. But how, how do we as Christians disentangle that from kind of like the organization BLM? How do we, how do we see that or look at that? Yeah, it's, it's tricky. I, I tell a story in the book, which I always think of when this question comes up, which is um, you know, my, my kids are all in Cambridge Public Schools. And one thing that I noticed as, as they went through the first couple of them went through elementary school was that they'd come home having learned songs at school that were actually Christian songs, but had been sort of slightly rebranded. And so they, they learned to ask me, you know, mommy, is this a Jesus song? And they tell me what they've been learning. And how I feel when I hear, um, you know, some, some of the ways in which our, our contemporaries are kind of proclaiming the value of, um, black people is like this is a jesus song that we christians all too often or we i should say you know white christians like like me have all too often been failing to sing actually um and, and it's heartbreaking to me that we're at a point where often not always but often when we hear people who are tr trying to talk seriously about um justice and equality and and the history of of racial oppression um, in the US and very much uh, complicit. My, my people were absolutely complicit in this. I, I, I don't forget the fact that it was, it was we Brits who um, profited extensively from exporting uh, African people to America for the basis of slavery. So, um, you know, I don't say this as a, a foreigner kind of throwing rocks across, <laughs> across the ocean. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that often when, when we hear people talking about uh, justice in the history of oppression that that we Christians can sort of immediately think, oh, well, this must be kind of secular liberal folk talking. Is profoundly sad to me because we should have been the ones 
leading this. Uh, we, this should have been our our mission, founded not on on any secular foundation, but but founded in the scriptures. Um, and as we look back, even I mean, all of us probably, whether we're Christians or or our atheist or agnostic neighbours, want to claim Martin Luther King as our sort of hero. We all feel you know warm fuzzies when we when we hear about his work. And, and in one sense, we should do because he was speaking as a Baptist pastor. He was calling people to repentance on the basis of the scriptures. But it's also very striking to me that if it were not for the failure of white Christians like me, like my tribe, if it was not for the, our failure to actually live as if the lives of, of black people mattered, there would have been no need for the civil rights movement. Right. It's sort of sobering to think that through. Um, now, when we think about, differentiating between the, the the vital and often suppressed truth that the lives of black people matter just as much as your or mine differentiated differentiated between that and you know a particular organization like um the black lives matter organization which is um propagating multiple things that that we christians couldn't um align with not least sort of tying that claim of black lives mattering to claims about um sexual identity that the mm-hmm. Christians couldn't align with. I think we do need to be discerning and we need to be careful to not um, you know, hitch our wagon to um, to secular organisations or, or sort of start um, accidentally funding <laughs> such organisations. Um, at the same time, that needs to not make us back off from talking on the basis of the scriptures about the history of sin and the need for repentance when it comes to, to race. Yeah, that's good. And so we're going to move on to to chapter two, love is love. How does, and how does, you talk about this in the book, how does Ephesians 5 affirm that marriage is between one man and one woman, and also affirm the, the different roles of each? Yeah, so um, Ephesians 5 famously is when the Apostle Paul kind of drills down into what Christian marriage is. And I like to say to non-Christian friends that what we Christians believe about sex is actually much weirder than you think. <laughs> you know, it, it's not just that we believe that sex only belongs in life and marriage between a man and a woman. But that the reason for this, if we search the scriptures, the reason for this, it, it all hangs on a metaphor. We see this from, from the, the beginning to the end, from sort of Genesis to Revelation. Mm-hmm. We see that God in the Old Testament scriptures is is often pictured as a loving, faithful husband and Israel as his all too often unfaithful wife. Right. And we see the sort of marriage and crisis as, um, as history, the history of God's people unfolds. And then we see Jesus stepping onto the stage of human history and saying, he is the bridegroom. Thinking, well, what's, what's that about? Well, it's, it's one of the ways in which he's stepping into the shoes of the creator God revealed in the old Testament. And as, as Paul um, addresses human and specifically Christian marriage in Ephesians 5, he unpacks the, the reality that the point of my marriage to my husband is not actually just two people making each other happy or a kind of convenient economic unit. Um, what it's about is modeling Jesus's love for his church. Mm-hmm. It's pointing to like a grander... Uh, reality, you know, an eternal yeah, I, reality. Right. And just, just as 
the absolute best human father gives us a tiny little glimpse of God's fatherly love for us. So the absolute best human husband is pointing us to Jesus's love for his people. And that is a love that is built on his sacrificial death. Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That, That verse is paired with the call to wives, which is wives submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ which is feels so countercultural to us today and it is mm-hmm. but we often we're sort of so fixated on that that verse that we actually forget the kind of companion verse mm-hmm. which is husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and i think that verse can be underheard both by folks who are um strongly resistant to the idea of wives submitting to their husbands which, to be clear, it's not something that ever came naturally to me. It's like I had to very much wrestle with this, um, sort of both theologically and, and personally, well before I actually got married. Um, but but if we truly let sink in what Paul is saying about husbands and their love for their wives, we cannot possibly conclude that a husband's job is to lord it over his wife, or to abuse his wife, or to put his wife down, or all the things which, honestly, right. sometimes too sadly, in the name of kind of complementarian marriage have have been enabled. Um, actually, what we should see from the best Christian husbands is men who are laying down their lives for their wives mm-hmm. and, and caring for their wives' needs above their own, not seeing their wives as sort of servants to their agenda, actually, but under Christ lovingly, sacrificing for their wives like jesus did for us right and it's i mean that's an extraordinary vision that none of us who are married are ever going to live up to but at its best human marriage can give us a tiny little glimpse of that right and in this chat in the love is love chapter you also get into same-sex sexuality and you i like i mean i like how you address some of the common objections to Paul's writings on this, on homosexuality, homosexual practice. And um, so can you just give us, uh, talk about the one, there are many objections that people come uh, come up with, but give us the, talk about the one that, uh, you know, Paul just only knew of exploitative or promiscuous models of homosexual relationships. Talk about that and why that, that res- response is faulty. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's easy to look back on most of human history, um, sort of before the modern era, and think that it's essentially Victorian. <laughs> that, sort of, that we've only recently discovered all sorts of different ways of, of being with other people sexually, and that you know people in the ancient world would be shocked by what, what they found here. In fact, the Greco-Roman Empire into which Christianity was born um, was one in which the idea of a, a free say Roman man um, being faithful just to his wife would have been pretty much laughable. Mm-hmm. Um, th- the way people kind of categorize things at that point wasn't actually in terms of um, gay or straight relationships. It wasn't sort of about like what, what sex is the person you're sleeping with. Um, they categorize things more in terms of sort of the passive or active partner in a, in a sexual act. And so long as the 
you know, our free roam man was the active partner in any sexual act. It was all good. Yeah. Um, so that meant that he could sleep with prostitutes. Uh, it meant that he could sleep with his slaves. It meant that he could sleep with other other men, so long as he kind of preserved his his role and his status in, in that encounter. Um, and it is true that there was there was a lot of what we today would recognise as kind of truly abusive sexual behaviour. Frankly, both sort of heterosexual and homosexual in, in, in mm-hmm. the ancient world. Um, but it is certainly not true that there was no um, concept in, in the ancient world of mutual, loving, even sort of faithful and, and long-term same-sex sexual relationships. Um, there actually, there actually was uh, sort of you know love poetry written between people of of the same sex, um, and so folks would say, well, if if only. Um, the New Testament authors could sort of see same-sex marriage today, they would say, well, you know, clearly that is different. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, it's different from some of what was going on in, in the ancient world, but uh, it, it's certainly not uh, different in the sense they would say, yes, this is, this is within God's design. Um, there's an interesting man named uh, Louis Compton, who is a, identifies as queer himself and as a historian of um of these questions and he says you know the idea that jesus or paul or or any of the early christians um would have changed what they were saying about same-sex sexuality if they only knew about kind of loving more equal relationships that we can see today is like just indefensible historically actually Mm -hmm. yeah um, and then talk about, cause you, you talk about this in the book, but how, talk about the importance of the body of Christ for those in the church who are, do deal with this, deal with same sex attraction. Yeah. Here's the thing. Um, I sometimes like to say sort of provocatively, and this could be mis- misquoted. So, so let the reader understand. I don't want to be misquoted on this. <laughs> I, uh, People sometimes say the Bible is against same-sex relationships. And I want to say, no, the Bible is profoundly for same-sex relationships. It just has a different vision of what they look like than our contemporaries have. Um, so, so Jesus, one of, one of the most beautiful things that Jesus ever said, which I, I'm still kind of pondering on and trying to, to understand the, the full force of, because I think it has implications in so many dimensions, is when he says to his disciples, and this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he says, greater love has no one than this than that he laid on his life for his friends. Right. Now we, in most of our church contexts, honestly, we would have ended the sentence differently. We would have said, you know, greater love has no one than this than the love of a husband for his wife or the love of a mother for her children. We're so bought into the idea that real intimacy, real kind of committed love happens only in sexual or romantic relationships or in parent-child relationships. And in fact, if we look at the scriptures, we see brother-sister and sister-sister and brother-brother relationships as profoundly intimate, Mm -hmm. but not sexual and not exclusive and not romantic. Um, I love how Paul in his letter to Philemon describes Anisimus as his very heart 
And the reality is, you know, if, if you're on my pastor described a male friend, it's his very heart to the congregation. People were like, oh, it's a little bit kind of feels a bit intense, you know, <laughs> yes. but, but that's the language Paul uses. He says we, we're knit together in love. Um, he says he was among the Thessalonians like a nursing mother with his with her children, which is when I've nursed three kids and it is about the most physically intimate thing you can do with somebody. But profoundly different from a sexual act, like it's. The whole it's a different category of, of, of intimacy. And I think Christian sexual ethics makes sense experientially in the context of true Christian community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think especially in our kind of Western Christian culture, we've privileged marriage over, over over singleness in a way that I don't think is aligned with the scriptures. And, and we've sort of built the church around the nuclear family. A nuclear family is a wonderful thing, but in, in New Testament terms, the primary family unit really is the local church and, and nuclear families kind of build into that. But we've, we've set things up so that single people all too often feel like they're on the edges in, in our Christian communities. And I think that's, that's us actually failing to live up to Christian ethics. Mm. Yeah, that's good. And so I'm going to move on to chapter three. The gay rights movement is the new civil rights movement. And, you know, we hear this, we, uh, we've heard this for decades, but um, and this idea that if you believe in the biblical sexual ethic, or if you actually believe what the Bible says, if you believe in the inerrancy and sufficiency of scripture, that you're on the wrong side of history. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so what you mentioned, you, you, you address five problems with this idea of being on the wrong side of history. Just, can you just give us one or two examples of those problems? Yeah, I think one of the most rhetorically powerful and sort of emotionally compelling arguments that people make today is to say, you know, just like you white Christians in the sixties used your Bibles to justify segregation now you're using your Bibles to justify opposing gay marriage for believers and transgender identities. And it's, it's powerful because the reality is the first part of that statement is true. Like it's tragic truth that many Christians in the sixties were using their Bibles extremely illegitimately to do just that. And, and to some extent until we kind of acknowledge that, like truly, truly acknowledge that, we're not going to have any moral legs to stand on today to, to explain why we believe what we believe about sexual ethics. But the problem with the, the 60s segregationists was not that they were too Christian. It was that they were not half Christian enough. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that they were too committed to the scriptures. It was actually that they were utterly failing to read and apply the, the, the scriptures um, to their situation. So the, the lesson from history there is not, well, stop, stop looking to the scriptures for your ethics. It's actually start looking to the scriptures for your ethics. And when we do, we will find that as clearly as, as the scriptures call us to love across racial and ethnic and cultural and the national dif- difference. So they call us away from same-sex sexual relationships. And because of the ways in which the civil rights, the sort of moral capital of the civil rights movement has been harnessed for the gay rights movement um, and then more recently for the transgender rights movement mm-hmm. there's a lot of very sloppy um, paralleling that goes on 
So when people say, well, uh, gay marriage is just like interracial marriage, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, well, actually, that's profoundly untrue. And in fact, whatever moral conclusions we we draw, and and our non-believing friends may come to very different moral conclusions, the reality is that that two men or two women um, sleeping together is is not a relationship that can conceive children, for example, which is, you know, not the only point of marriage, but certainly not um, <laughs> incidental to to the idea of marriage. Right. Whereas a, a, a black person and a white person getting married um, has zero bearing on their ability to to have children together. Um, the the differences biological differences between you as a man and me as a woman are actually quite significant. Whereas the the biological differences between you and a, and a black man or me and a, a black woman are, you know, pretty much in the noise. Um, and actually much of, so there's a lot of sort of pseudoscience that went on to try and justify segregation and try, try to find you know, deeply entrenched biological differences between white people and black people and frankly failed in that enterprise. But whatever we conclude morally, you or I have fundamentally different bodies um and that's that's true of obviously of our sexual organs but it's actually a truth that works its way across our entire anatomies as well so some of the kind of simplistic um being gay is like being black um arguments really fail because in fact being gay is not like being black and one of the the most important ways in which they fail is they can they confuse something with which you and I are born. So our, our, our racial heritage is something that we're born and born with and it's morally neutral with um, decisions that we make. Now, they may be decisions we make on the basis of our unchosen attractions, for sure. But actually, you and I, you know, you and I could each be making very different decisions about what we do in, in light of our capacity for attraction to folks of our same sex. And it's it's deeply dehumanizing to say, well, because you or I were either born with or, or some, somehow along the way um, accrued the, the capacity to to be attracted to folks of our same sex, that we 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 must live into those attractions. Actually, no. You and I are, are human beings who make moral decisions on the basis of, of our desires. We're not actually compelled to follow our desires. So, someone choosing to um, engage in, in same-sex sexual relationships is not like somebody who uh, is black or is white. It's actually, we're confusing a kind of um, given biological non-moral reality with moral decisions that folks are making. Right. And I, you talk about this too in this chapter, um, which is a common phenomenon I've, I found uh, in the Christian world is, is when it becomes, especially for parents, when it becomes personal, then suddenly the parent, the, 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 the parent who formerly had very strong convictions about the biblical sexual ethic become gay affirming. And in your book, you say, I, you use this kind of example of quote, I used to think that the Bible was against gay marriage, but then I met a gay friend at work. He's really nice and seems to be in a really loving relationship. So now I'm not sure. So what does this kind of statement from someone like this betray about that person and their their understanding? Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
I mean, the sad reality is that that many of us who grew up in Christian households, or, or perhaps not even in Christian households, but in, in um, households that might have been broadly conservative on these questions, many of us were raised to think that gay people were somehow, um, in, in some generalized sense, bad people. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, from a Christian perspective, we're all like fundamentally bad people from the get-go. So I, I'm not saying that, you know, there's some sort of special moral goodness that accrues to um, to folks who identify as gay or lesbian, for, for sure not. But millions in our generation and, and those sort of above and below um, were, were raised to expect a, a, all sorts of immoral behaviours from people who were attracted to folks of their, their same sex. So when they, when they, in adulthood or as, um, you know, as a college student, get to know somebody who identifies as gay, and it turns out he's a delightful guy who seems to be very caring and, um, you know, a wonderful citizen and all, all, all other sort of potentially morally positive attributes accrue to this person, they think, oh, well, I must have been wrong. Because in fact, much of what they were raised to believe about people who identify as gay or lesbian was wrong. Um, but the, the, the basis um, for my belief that sex only belongs in marriage between a man and a woman and that same-sex sexual relationships are in fact morally wrong is not because uh, I think that people who are attracted to folks of their same sex are kind of innately morally inferior to heterosexual people. <laughs> um, they may be kinder in general. It depends from person to person. It, that, that's not the basis um, for that belief the basis for that belief is is the scriptures mm-hmm. and so i think there's been on the one hand what um my friend rachel calls accidental orthodoxy of people who oppose gay marriage but really because of uh, legitimate homophobia as like a fear or hatred of gay and lesbian people rather than because of any real christian conviction um and on the other hand there's people who when they realized that they were raised with misleading unkind caricatures of gay or lesbian people and they kind of need to shed those, they then think, well, maybe the Bible is wrong. Right. Okay. Yeah, that, that's good. Um, we're going to move on to chapter four, women's rights or human rights. And um, talk about a little bit about, um, again, you know, there's no basis for women's rights if there's no creator. If, you know, if we live in, a, if we're materialists, there's no basis for anyone's rights. Right. But talk about that and talk about also the, the kind of the fallout. Uh, you have a section on the fallout of the sexual revolution. Talk a little bit about that. Gosh, yeah, I, I've read a couple of books recently that have made me even more convinced of some of the things I was convinced of when I, when I wrote that book. So the fallout of the sexual revolution, in brief summary, is as follows. Um, the sexual revolution was sold to us as the liberation of women. Mm-hmm. The argument was, well, for centuries, men have been finding ways to sneak around Christian marriage and have free sex. And now, great news, thanks to the pill, um, women could as well. But in reality, if we look back over the the decades um, since the sexual revolution, we'll find that women's self-reported happiness in America has actually declined. And you kind of got to wonder, well, why is that? And a, a piece of the reason, a significant piece of the reason, is that commitment-free sex is actually a poison chalice. Mm-hmm. Far from being this sort of ticket to a, a much um, better and happier life, it's actually a ticket to a, a pretty miserable life. I think 
both for men and for women, but in particular for women. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just recently finished reading a book by um, Christian Ember, who writes for the Washington Post. It's called Rethinking Sex. Have you, have you come across it? I haven't seen it. No, I haven't read that. Yeah, it's very interesting. So she's writing not from a particularly Christian perspective, though she was raised evangelical and now identifies as Catholic. She will, she's not actually writing the book from any particularly religious perspective. But she has done extensive interviews with um, her contemporaries. It's, it's mostly with sort of pretty educated um, uh, women. Um, so I, I'd be curious to see somebody doing the same work with women in a different demographic. Um, but what she has found is that women are consenting to a whole lot of commitment-free sex that they actually neither want nor enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, she gives heart-rending examples of women finding themselves um, having sex with a man who starts to choke them because that's what he's seen um, people in you know, pornography doing. Um, and they're technically consenting in the sense that they haven't like screamed no, but in fact, they're being subjected to extremely misogynistic in the sense of like hateful to women um, experiences. And because of the way that we've constructed culture, they are feeling guilty for the fact that they're not happy. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just, I mean, it was kind of a heartbreaking, heartbreaking read. But yeah, we've created this culture of, of commitment-free sex, which is very exploitative, actually, to women. Um, and then at the, the same time, so, so we've had the sort of fallout of the sexual revolution in terms of uh, what women are experiencing just day to day. And women who might well identify as sort of liberal feminists who on paper, in theory, would have said, yeah, commitment-free sex sounds like a great idea just kind of rubbing up against the actual experience um Mm -hmm. being um hurt both sort of emotionally and even even physically in, in the process and then we have the reality that the the trans rights movement is tearing up the the central reality of what a woman even is uh, and it's it's been interesting in the last couple of years, I read three books by women who are not Christians at all. Um, the latest one I'm reading is by a, a lesbian feminist philosophy professor in the UK um, who, are, who are pointing to the ways in which the trans rights movement right now is actually completely undermining in any semblance of, of women's rights um, and, and attacking things that women have been trying to sort of advocate for for, for decades. Um, because as, as soon as you say, well, having a female body is in fact not necessary to being a woman, but that any man can kind of opt into the category of woman and be, and be recognised as a woman in every sense. So whether it's playing on a women's sports team or being sent to a women's prison instead of a men's prison or entering a shelter for battered women um once we say that we actually have no stable definition of what a woman is at all 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 we have left is stereotypes right um and and it's a truly complex place we're in right now and i think it's easy for folks on both sides of, of the question to oversimplify and i want to be careful to not do that um because 
I also know people who've experienced like profound and lifelong gender dysphoria, a deep sense of discomfort with their own biological sex um, that has you know, pushed them to the edges of suicide. Uh, and so I, I want to be careful to not, uh, to sort of recognize the, the pain that actually some people live with and have lived with. Um, and that this is not a sort of a, a simple story that we would want to kind of caricature on either end. But at the same time to recognize that um, once we say, as the slogan goes, sort of transgender women are women, we've taken the claim that women's rights are human rights, um, torn it up and thrown it in the trash, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, I, I like how you, you talk about this. You, you say that um, many secular people believe in science as the final arbiter of truth, but the idea of a non-physical reality of gender, quote unquote, undermines the materialism of the secular world. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's funny. I was, I followed a Twitter thread a a couple of weeks ago. Um, I follow a number of people who would be identified as uh, TERFs or trans exclusionary radical feminists, which basically means. J.K. uh, Rowling. (laughs) Yeah, J.K. Rowling, but also others who who are basically saying, no, to be a woman, you actually have to have a a woman's body, which five years ago would have been a perfectly kind of manila thing that any self-respecting liberal could have signed up to but but now makes you a sort of trans-exclusionary radical feminist and somebody had sort of asked well um you know what is this thing called a gender identity uh, which even in in legal context now both in the us and the uk is being you know enshrined into law in, in in many situations as sort of trumping biological sex as a protected category and somebody commented oh it's a secular belief in a sexed soul, which I found so interesting. <laughs> you know, so so our, some of our most secular friends and acquaintances today are grasping onto a deep belief that there is something completely separate from my body or your body that, that defines whether we are in fact male or female. And that you and only you or I could kind of know what that that was, um, but that it's somehow, you know, means that if I if my gender identity were in fact male, then my body is sort of incidental to the question. I am male and whatever my body says or you are female, whatever your body says. Um, And it is curiously like just believing in a in a soul, (laughs) um, which most of these folks, if you kind of pin them to the wall and said, do you believe in souls or not? They say, well, no, that's kind of weird religious stuff. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you sort of do because you're making claims about something, something that, that is given and it's not, people talk in all sorts of different ways. So it's impossible to completely generalize, but generally folks aren't saying everyone chooses their gender identity, you know, off the top of their heads. It's, they're more saying people discover their gender identity. And so you're assigned a sex at birth on the basis of your physical body, but you you might in fact be the opposite mm-hmm. sex because of your gender identity being different. So yeah, there's a, a lot of oddly mystical stuff going on. Right. And so, and then how you talk about this too, how does Jesus, because obviously the, the concept of non-binary is a, a very popular phenomenon now, but how, how does Jesus affirm, because obviously God does, he creates male and female in, in the very beginning, but how does Jesus affirm a binary male and female? 
the binary of a male and female. Yeah, I mean, so, so Jesus City famously says in um, Matthew's Gospel that God created us male and female, and he's talking, he's been asked a question about divorce, and he he sets a very high standard for marriage um, to where even his disciples are kind of taken aback by how seriously Jesus is taking marriage as a, as a one flesh reality between a man and a woman. Um, and so I think it's, it's very clear that Jesus affirms that um, it, it's, it's worth noting, and this is true of every, our, every part of our body, because we live in a fallen world and we are not as, um, you know, as, we, as we once were um, and as we one day will be, there are some people who are born with some kind of disorder of sexual development, which is sometimes called intersex. Mm-hmm. Um, often people actually who have a disorder of sexual development do not prefer the term intersex. And that's a sort of very politically loaded word often. Um, but I think another thing that kind of gets lost in these conversations is the reality. There are some people who are actually born not sort of straightforwardly conforming to either a male or a female body. Um, and, and those folks, we do need to be kind of, showing real care for and, and um, acknowledging in our Christian communities. I have a friend who's, uh, who's, whose child is in that situation. But at the same time, we need to recognize that the Bible teaches that we were made male and female and that this is good. And I think that's profoundly helpful um, to you and I and to, to anyone listening to this podcast. The likelihood is none of us or few of us feel like we, we're the gold standard of masculine or feminine, you know, that we're some sort of um, platonic ideal of what it means to be a man or a woman. I certainly don't, don't feel like I'm the kind of platonic ideal of a woman. But I know that God made me and that he made me good. Mm-hmm. And even more importantly, I believe that Jesus... Um, is saving us not just to sort of float around as disembodied souls in heaven someday, but to live resurrection life, embodied resurrection life with him for all eternity. Mm-hmm. And so the ways in which my body today um, might not be everything I want it to be, or, or those of us who are struggling with chronic pain, or those of us who are born with a disorder of sexual development, or those of us um, you know, who are currently dying of cancer, wh- whatever we're carrying in our bodies, that Jesus will ultimately redeem that. So I think actually the, the promise of the resurrection is profoundly important to how we think about transgender questions today and questions of, of gender identity. Yeah, I like that. Um, well, we're, we're out of time. We're going to leave it at that. And again, guys, the book is Secular Creed. And again, it's, it's a fast read. And uh, actually, my pastor, Jeremy Treat at my church in Hollywood, has recommended this book to the uh, my entire congregation just so we can get kind of a grasp of these these kind of um these hot topical these topical issues that are are very uh uh difficult right now in culture so i i really urge you to get secular creed and you've there's you have a new book coming out right rebecca i do yeah um a book called jesus through the eyes of women which is looking at the, the women in the Gospels, both named and unnamed, and what we learn about Jesus by, so to speak, looking through their eyes. And it's funny because on one, on the one hand, it sounds like a very modern project, like, oh, of course, we'll take the woman's perspective, you know, in this, in this scenario and, and impose our modern thinking on the ancient world. In fact, if you read the Gospels, 
you'll find that the gospel authors are specifically inviting us to look at Jesus through the eyes of those women. Then they're naming women as eyewitnesses of Jesus in important ways. So I, I think it's not just a kind of modern project. It's, it's actually kind of an ancient project. And all I'm really doing in that book is saying, hey, let's, let's look at some incredible gospel stories where Jesus is, is relating to women and see, um, see what we find out about him through that. Good. I like that. So, and how can people contact you or if, do you want them to contact you? How can people find, how can people find you? <laughs> I love it. Because um, you have a, you have an organization, right? The, um, the, uh, vocable communications. Yeah. So that, that's a kind of thing with a, a different hat, um, where I'm helping coach people on, on how to communicate better. Um, okay. my favorite, my favorite work I do with that hat on is, is actually coaching pastors and other Christian leaders rather than just sort of random business people. Um, Cause if I really believe in their message, it's more satisfying to, to help folks communicate better. And um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and I have a very infrequently updated website, <laughs> which I need to put my new book on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you can follow me there. I think I'm most active on Twitter cause I like words and I don't really care about images, but I, right. I try to post on Instagram sometimes. <laughs> All right. Well, good. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Rebecca. I appreciate it. And guys, please get the book and we will see you next week on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. I'm Billy Yancey, entrepreneur, fitness cowboy, father, retired Navy cornerback, and now podcast host. Listen to my new show, Billy and the Goat, on Life Audio. Happy listening.